This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And that's a eulogy, a remembrance of a loved one. Sometimes it's someone famous, sometimes not. Send us your stories at ouramericannetwork.org, your eulogies, your final thoughts, and we'll bring them to air. Shakespeare once said, No legacy is so rich as honesty. And what better quote to attribute to the late writer, columnist, and contributor to Fox News, Charles Krautheimer, than that saying by Shakespeare, no matter what side of the aisle you stood on, you had to make a conscious effort to look past Krautheimer's call-it-like-it-is attitude, backed up by a tremendous capacity for reason. We would like to play a tribute to Charles Krautheimer, written and performed by a friend of this show, former Major League Baseball commissioner and chairman of Columbia Pictures, Faye Vincent. Listen as one great man honors the legacy of another. Charles Krauthammer is one of my heroes. Every evening for years, my wife and I watched the Fox News special report as he softly delivered his insights on politics with stunning and often sardonic wit and intelligence. We grew to rely on his electronic companionship. He knew where True North pointed, and although he could bite, he seldom barked. When he announced that he had a few weeks to live, we were sad and sorry for his troubles, and we are not alone, for he is widely admired and loved. Now that he's departed this earth, Our pain is sharp. Charles was a serious baseball fan devoted to his local Washington Nationals. So his final statement that my life is over recalled for me the moving exit speech by the Yankee immortal Lou Gehrig, who called himself the luckiest man on the face of this earth on July 4th, 1939 when he was dying of his eponymous disease. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. It is important to play the game, and it's also important how one leaves the game. For most of his life, Charles was a quiet witness every day that the fates can be cruel. He surely endured untold suffering, and this most recent medical report that he made public seems like piling on, to use a football term. Charles was again being obliged to endure suffering though he surely had a full dose when he broke his neck during a dive into a gym pool when he was a first-year medical student at Harvard. After that devastating injury that left him without use of his legs and only very limited use of his arms, 
He finished his medical training on time with his class of 1975. He became a psychiatrist and only turned to journalism when his writings attracted admiration by publishers. Many admirers who watched Charles on Fox television did not know he was sitting in a wheelchair. But I noticed because I also ride a chair and I'm limited. Charles never spoke of his issues, but I felt a special bond and wrote him a fan letter many years ago to commend both his remarkable political commentary and his courage. Like him, I had experienced a serious injury at a young age when I broke my back in a fall while at college and I had been paralyzed, though my injury was much less severe than his. It turned out that he knew of my history for the same reasons that I knew of his. When he replied to my fan letter, he was gracious and shared his personal insight on our useful misfortunes. He wrote that he and I were fortunate, sort of, to have suffered our injuries when we were so young. He believed we might have had more difficulty recovering had we been hurt in an older age because youth has advantages. His wise diagnosis had the ring of psychiatric training. Whenever I felt bad about my own problems, his example was a shining one. Past great political pundits like Walter Lippmann, H.L. Mencken, and Arthur Kroc were not the presence that Charles Cardhammer became with his daily Fox News appearances. Charles was the finest of our current political translators because he was so well suited for our age. In this age of bloviating and uncivilized screamers, Charles was uncommonly self-effacing and reserved, shyly irreverent and traditionally respectful and civil. He had a classic education and was literate when those attributes are becoming quite rare. He spoke to the aspirational elements in us as many of us wished we knew what Charles knew. In his famous prayer, John Henry Cardinal Newman asked his God to grant him each night a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. It is that peace at the last that we wish for our friend Charles Crowdhammer. He told us his final fight is over and we saw him fight so well. Now may peace come to this fine man who led his life and us in such a noble manner. May you have that peace, dear Charles. And that is Faye Vincent and a loving memorial, beautiful piece of writing of the Wall Street Journal, his tribute to Charles Krauthammer. In a way, Faye Vincent's story, Charles Krauthammer's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And this next one is one of our favorites. And it's one of the quintessential American stories. Yet chances are, many of you have never even heard of this man's name. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today, which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought. And at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star. At a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A, a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time, embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here in this one person, you have extreme heroism 
an extreme celebrity is trying to mix. And his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audie was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy more interested in in gambling and having a good time and the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun and it had eight bullets in it and Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22, I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on the run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Ed. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family, and he never came back. So now... Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of of a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. 
Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old, plus he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more from these great historians... More on this remarkable life, the life of Audie Murphy, here on Our American Stories. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a couple of hundred hours now on this Days in Histories, on just pure stories, and particularly soldiers' stories. Art Dick Winter's story from Band of Brothers, his life. You'll hear from him from the grave. When we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy... This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. We're listening to Wiley J. Smith's Ballad of Audie Murphy. And if you've never seen the movie, 
to Hell and Back. It comes on TV all the time. Don't skip it. It's terrific. And it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake. So everybody today knows who he is. But let's go back to the story, back to Audie Murphy's life. The Army Infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning. And he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And the, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the third division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter and Audie Murphy, I don't know if I want to say envies him for this, but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he, you know, he doesn't have much in the way of family. And he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says, you know, you're going to get back to see her, you're going to get back to her, you're going to be a great father. And then, you know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44. And they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes. And then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes. And he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. 
Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America. The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across the snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio and he's calling in artillery from the rear and he's telling you know where to drop the artillery rounds and he was always very good at this which serves him very well and he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has they will go straight to the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And then he realizes that over to his right, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke and it masks his position, it gives him cover, it's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. And he thought that the Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him, number one, and they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. Later he said, I remember being up on there and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. And there's that story, and I think it's true, that you know he's up on this tank with his right hand on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for artillery support. And across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? How close are they? Out of the I'll let you talk to them. And his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. It gets to the point where the shells coming in are kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back. And, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking. And he walks over to a tree and he leans against the tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back, 
more of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. Though he was badly wounded, Audie never left his gun. He killed 240 men and made the Germans run. And when the fight was over, the men all gathered round to shake the hand of the Texas man that backed the Germans down. He fought 100 battles and he never turned to run. The president sent for him when he heard what he had done. Gave him the highest honor our country has to give. He said you didn't fight in vain as long as freedom lives. Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow since she said she'd never forgive. The house that we built was once filled with laughter. But I changed that laughter to tears And now I live in a world without sunshine Oh, how I wish you were And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Dean Martin singing an original composition written by none other than Audie Murphy. Then let's return to the story of the most decorated soldier ever in American history. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think. A little, a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy. And Audie says to him, you know, don't be afraid to be scared. There's going to be times when you're scared to death. And then Audie tells this kid, I'm always scared when I'm at the front. And it's, it's the irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style, for people who can't take it and who break under combat to somebody who understands intimately how, how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's He's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. 
Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. There's nothing today, and I think about this sometimes, I, I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. But it's this cover and it shows him looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school, and of course he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed you know, 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly. This guy was 50% disabled, according to the U.S. Army. And, and this guy's carrying around, already carrying around some, some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night. But there he is on the cover of Life magazine, looking like a Norman Rockwell figure come to life. One of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in a gym that a friend of his owned and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back, and that was all about his experiences in the war. To Helen Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who, who had fought, who had died, and kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. Although Audie's high point was very public, Audie's low point was more private. But while this, all this was going on off screen, Audie, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle, but during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. 
He never really did get over it, but he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director, Bud Bedeker, on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day and he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45, the picture's in good shape, don't worry about a thing, I'm gonna blow my brains out. And I had two seconds and I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a bitch, and he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington, the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly. It's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone, and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief. doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave. is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Back. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning, and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, If I had... You think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero. Tom Brokaw. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man. Humble beginnings. Humble in birth. And humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington, by the way, Arlington National Cemetery, you must go. You must take the family. As solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks and no one laughs and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And it was a remarkable thing to not have that special lettering there. Many Medal of Honor winners choose it. And Murphy just didn't want to be different than the rest of the guys. 
And well, he's received every award, every citation, including the Medal of Honor, all before, again, he turned 20 years old. The baby. He looked 14, they said over and over again. Remember also that he wrote 17 songs. Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagoner, Jimmy Dean, Charlie Pride. And we're going to bump out with this Jerry Wallace cover of Audie Murphy's When the Wind Blows in Chicago. This is Lee Habib, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Story. Oh, why won't it let me forget? Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our One Mom versus the Machine series. And we previously brought you Kathy Hamilton's story of taking down the corrupt board and president of her local community college, and also Marva Collins's story of becoming disillusioned teaching in Chicago's public schools that were failing its students and deciding to take all of her life savings, $5,000, to start her very own school. And now, today's feature, which comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. This Ohio mom is a Spanish teacher at a public high school. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Okay, now, I wasn't where I could prove it. I didn't have film. But the first time a nail was in my tire at school, I didn't even think about it. The second time, within that same fall, it happened. I thought, okay... Am I running over something? The third time it happened at school, I went out and my tire was flat. I thought, okay, what, what's going on here? Her name is Jade Hamilton, and she didn't always want to become a teacher. I was very fortunate, um, and it was by serendipity. I met... A woman here at Marietta College, I had moved here from Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I just had a new baby. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill and loved it. So I was moving from being a full-time professional to a full-time mom in a small um, town. And I was, I didn't have very many friends, and I, I was struggling to find my identity. And when I met her, she was the new head of the Department of Modern Languages at Marietta College. So what she, after talking to me and finding out that I had traveled, studied abroad, and my dad was in the Foreign Service, and I'd lived in Chile and Argentina, and I'd lived in Brazil and Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and then in Africa, and then in Spain. Okay, so she said, you, you, can you teach an adjunct class, which is on a per-class basis? I said to her, I, I'm not, I didn't go to school to be a teacher, and she said, you know, Many people who go to school to be a teacher are not good teachers. She said, you have all this life experience. Wouldn't you just try? And try Jay did, teaching in college while she was getting her master's degree in teaching. And Jade has continued to bring all of her amazing experiences right into the classroom. Although it hasn't always exactly been what she was expecting. Many of her students just want to Google the answers, and they don't have a zeal for the actual mastery of the subject. But she tries, 
to break through. I try to do what I call a song and dance. I see myself as a link in the chain. I'm the beginning teacher or the, you know, the secondary school teacher, and hopefully they will, turn it, they will be turned on and take it in college. So I take my responsibility there. I try to be happy. I try to be in a good mood. I try to not, not entertain my kids because I can be hard on them, but I try to get them interested in, oh, wow, oh, I could do this, or, oh, Mrs. Thompson, and they'll come and say, did you see this soccer player, or did you see this music, this band that came out, and this song? Sadly, Jade would find out that not all of her colleagues had this same enthusiasm for her after she asked what she thought was a very basic question about the union that they belonged to and that did the collective bargaining for their pay packages, which, by the way, she was fine with. I started to wonder, what is my $800, $900 a year going toward? Does it take that much money? Do the math and calculate that times all the people. We have, I think, three um, elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. That's a lot of money to collective bargain. How, how hard is it? How long does that take? And you do it for about a year. You know, I started asking questions and wondering. And wonder she should. If you're a mom like Jade, trying to make ends meet for your family, you gotta look at every expense, especially one that's eight to nine hundred dollars a year. Jade's calculation is that it should cost about two hundred sixty dollars a year, both for the liability insurance that helps protect teachers in the event of a lawsuit against them, and for the collective bargaining. She knows that she can get private liability insurance for less than two hundred dollars a year. And the nature of collective bargaining is that it isn't an ongoing yearly cost. Usually they bargain your contract and it's good for five years or, you know, it's, it's not every single year they're bargaining. Jade isn't anti-union. In fact, she was a full dues-paying member of the union. But the mom and her kept coming across things. It really upset me when, at a certain point, a teacher showed me where the money goes on the national scale. You know, like, so 177 goes straight to the National Education Association. That's the national one. 177 of my dollars. The local union passes along this amount of Jade's dues to this national arm of the union. Well, okay, you're hearing about what kind of salaries they have. Almost 50 people making over $200,000. Then they may have a convention or an event in in Las Vegas, and they they stay in these hotels. I'm like, wait a minute, okay, where is this coming from? Well, you take Jade's $177 times 124,000 Ohio teachers making the same payment, and you get... $21,948,000 from Ohio to the National Union. And by the way, in case you forgot, Ohio's one of only 50 states. In Jade's statewide union, the Ohio Education Association, the OEA, is living quite differently, too. 
when you find out all the, the list of salaries for the OEA, I, I think there are two, two pages, full pages of salary for the Ohio Education Association. And probably the lowest paying person makes two or three times what I make as a teacher. So when I started to look at, okay, what's the OEA president make? Near $200,000. Well, in Ohio, a salary of $200,000 is luxury. I mean, you know, you're, you're a doctor, a lawyer, you maybe make that, but not normal people. And when we come back, this not normal mom starts to really dig in. This is Lee Habib, one mom versus the machine. Jade Thompson's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to our One Mom versus the Machine segment, Jade Thompson's story. And when we had left off, she had talked about how the salaries she was seeing for the state union just weren't normal. Well, this not-so-normal mom, she was about to really dig in. Like all things in life, from business to government, normal people closer to home are more accountable. And because of this, they also perform better. Why can't it be a professional organization of people that knows our school, that we employ, somebody local? Why does it have to be national? And why does my money have to go to the national and then the OEA? The union would respond that state and national folks have unique expertise that not every local union could provide. They quite simply know better. And and it's an argument that has some merit, but sometimes they act like they know better, too. You start getting, during political cycles, magazines from the OEA. Okay, they have a monthly magazine that comes out, and it is, it's right, they, they just, sorry to say it this way, cram it right down your throat. They tell you who to vote for. Well, I take offense, don't tell me who to vote for. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or Green Party, none of us want to be told who to vote for, let alone through these means. Who's paying for this magazine? I am. I'm paying for the propaganda that comes my way, and it's a slick magazine. Okay, so I don't want to pay for that. I don't mind paying for collective bargaining. And then, one day, all these political activities became all too personal. I never really got involved, but I didn't make a stand or do anything, and I didn't like it at all. But then what happened was my husband was a city councilman. He decided to run for state representative. When he ran for state representative, um, what the union started doing was sending all these ads out against my husband that were very mocking and political in nature. And um, they were going to my mom's household. My mom was alive at the time. And, you know, in the return box paid for by the campaign for moderate majority. And then in parentheses, OEA, S-E-I-U. Okay, wait, the OEA in Columbus? The union that she was part of 
was taking her money and using it to oppose and mock her very own husband. And of course, without her permission to spend her hard-earned money this way. It was like an epiphany of, are you kidding me? This, that's like a major slap in the face. Jade's husband was running as a Republican, but to her, that should have made no difference at all. Um, I wouldn't want a Democratic friend. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I've had to go through. And um, it's just not right. It's not right for them to use your money, your forced dues in that manner. If a union opposes a spouse of one of their Democratic members, they're risking doing so on behalf of a minority of their members. Republicans only make up about 25% of union membership. And if a union opposes a Republican member's spouse, they're also risking doing so on behalf of a minority. Less than 45% of union members identify as Democrats. The union is speaking for all in a way that they don't speak for all. Most membership organizations stick to the issues where the vast majority of their members agree for this reason. For the unions, their way of doing business could be untenable for them and exposes them to further diminishing. Their membership has already dropped in half from 20% of American workers to 10% in just over 30 years. And it doesn't help when you don't respond to your members. So I actually called the OEA president. Her name was Patricia Frost. At the time, she, of course, wouldn't take my call. And I tried to complain. I said, you know, really, this is... uh, this is ridiculous. I, I have to be in this union and, you know, the OEA is doing something. I This is ridiculous. So um, it was a crucible moment for me, though, because before I kind of didn't have a voice. I didn't want to distinguish myself in any uh, pejorative way. So then I started getting, you know, angry. Uh, you won't take my call. I thought, okay, you, you that's fine. That's fine. I'm fighting back now. So... I I did feel alone for a a time, and I decided to write a couple letters to the editor, which got picked up by the Columbus Dispatch. Fairly nerve-wracking for me, but I thought to myself, if I'm quiet, all these people speak for me. And um, my husband is a really good man, and he does not deserve this, and this is wrong. I was so worried, oh, I'm going to have repercussions at school. But you know what I thought to myself? If you're my friend and, and you know who we are, then you'll support me. And because her union stopped supporting her, she decided to stop supporting it. I decided then to be a, a fee payer, and I changed my status. So I'm a non, I'm a, I have to pay still to be in the union to have my collective bargaining, but they give you a certain amount back. Ohio is not a right-to-work state. So if your workplace is unionized and you don't want to be a member of a union, 
you kind of sort of still have to be. As Jade mentioned, your only option is to become what's called a fee payer, where you have to pay the union for what they say are the costs to represent you in any potential legal matters and to negotiate your contract on your behalf, even if you don't want them to. But allegedly, you also no longer have to pay for all the other activities of a union, such as their political lobbying and election efforts, and this would be a good thing. But the reality is, well... If you just look at the OEA and NEA portions of a teacher's dues, a fee payer is forced to pay 97.9% of a regular union member's dues, a difference of only 2.1%. So the Ohio Union, in effect, is saying that only 2.1% of their budget goes to non-representation activities. Hmm, think that adds up? Whatever the reality is, this puny refund creates a strong disincentive for a teacher to leave a union, especially when this can be the result. When you start to speak out about it or talk about it, other teachers try to intimidate you. They make you feel like, well, you can't go against the union. You've got to be in the union. Or if you're against the union, you're against public schools, or you're against the teachers. Wait a minute, I'm not. I just, I don't want to be, don't you guys see all this stuff going on? Nobody, there are a lot of people who are like cows to the slaughter. They do not want to know. So that intimidation factor is people who are worried that they'll lose their job or they'll have to work with somebody who's very pro-union. And what I realized is if once you start talking about it, people start they identify you and then they freeze you out. Like they will be walking down the hall in the, in the school and they, you say hello to them as a polite, normal person with people skills and they act like they didn't hear you. I wanna be working in a, in a school where I feel like I have colleagues that respect me and we can go to each other and help each other and you know cross curriculum kinds of uh, lessons and those kinds of things. So uh, you don't. Nobody wants to be in an organization where nobody will talk to you, right? Right. And what a mom this is! Again, don't get on the wrong side of a fighter. This is our American stories, Jay Thompson's story, and this takes courage, folks. I mean, this is the kind of courage that is hard to exhibit, particularly in small towns, and we broadcast from a small town here in Oxford, Mississippi. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story, Jay Thompson's story, more after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to the final portion of this incredible one mom versus the machine story, Jade Thompson's story. And when we left off, Jade was expressing the pain of her fellow teachers not talking to her in the hallways because she simply decided to leave the union. Despite this, Jade still chose to opt out of the union and talk to her fellow teachers. But becoming a fee payer was easier said than done. When you opt out, you have a very small window every single year that you have to do. You're opting out. You get a packet in the mail from the OEA. And um, of course, it comes at Christmas time when you are so busy. And what people, I didn't even look for that. I didn't even know what that package was. So it's this packet, and on the third or fourth page are the instructions for how to how to opt out and how to be a fee payer. You have to get it postmarked by January 15th, and so you know you're good to be a fee payer for one year. So you have a very short, small window. A lot of teachers don't even know about it, and they don't make it really easy to figure out how to do it. You have to look for it. So I think on this year. There were instructions on page three, and then there was another, you had to go into like page 15 to, so um, uh, opting out is a chore. The union ought to ask you, it ought to be competitive. It ought to ask you, do you want to be a member? And are we doing a good job? In fact, the state of Wisconsin in 2011 changed their structure so that individuals have the free choice of whether to opt into the union in the first place so that you don't have to opt out. And this really is how every other membership organization in America works. We decide whether to opt in to attend a certain church, the Lions Club, the Chamber of Commerce, or none of them at all. And when you decide not to become a member of these organizations, typically this doesn't happen. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Tragically, the intimidation didn't stop at the grown-up level. My son's math teacher, she, in my son's math class, made a point. And my son was, you know, in high school, he didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want people to know his dad was the representative and she made several references in class about my husband oh and she said you know my son's name and this is your dad or whatever well he was completely mortified the health teacher did that and so did the math teacher and um, i had to go to our principal and have a meeting with them and say you know you can't do that you can't you absolutely cannot call my husband's name in your class in your math class or your health class and um, embarrass my son because he he's not a political figure and he doesn't deserve that. That's crossing a line. If you're a teacher of English, a teacher of math, teacher of Spanish, stick on your subject. Teach your subject as best you can. You shouldn't be up there teaching your politics. So uh, I guess in English you could say, well, you know, you got to write a persuasion paper. But don't you feel intimidated if you know your teacher is supporting the Democrat and you want to support the Republican? Maybe your parents are Republican and 
you know, teachers this year even have gotten in trouble for uh, saying political things after the election. And um, <clears throat> they don't get fired, though. And they don't get I, I just don't want my kids to be subject to that. I just want them to have um, anonymity and fairness. And so that's been that's been a little bit touchy. I will be glad when my youngest graduates. So we'll see. And through all of this, Jade wasn't going to let the intimidation stop her. This mom sued them. About that time, I reached out to the National Right to Work Foundation. They, they actually came to talk to me in person and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a lawsuit. It was called Saxton versus the OEA. And I got to meet about 20 other teachers who were also a part of this lawsuit. Well, this is my first time to be with other people who I didn't feel so alone. They knew, they knew that they were finding out the same kinds of things that I was finding out and sort of sticking their necks out. And that was empowering. Their lawsuit challenged the amount that the union was forcibly charging fee payers like them. These teachers believed that the refund amount off of the standard union dues should have been higher. That the union was unconstitutionally charging them for non-representation activities that they can't charge them for, such as public relations, union organizing, and lobbying. These seemingly lowly teachers who took on an all-powerful union in a three-year epic fight turned out to be right. And won. The Thaxton got, uh, I think, as a fee payer before, you got $105 back. Now you get 235 or around there. Um, so it doubled. That was the change that the union agreed to in a settlement. And the settlement talks were something else. It was, um, it was an education in itself watching the OEA lawyers argue. And they wanted us to, um, they actually approached, the OEA lawyers approached our, the any the National Right to Work lawyers and said, Oh, just just let's let's bargain this deal for a couple of years and and you know we'll see you back in court and you'll get paid again and they were kind of trying to cut a deal under the under the table but none of those teachers were in it for money they were all in it to have change and so every single one of us said we don't want it to just be effective for two years or four years we want it to be we're doing this for teachers that can't speak out or won't speak out people going forward. And so um, we did get it that was 30 years effective. And it was for everyone who wants to be a fee payer, past, present, and future. Not just for the plaintiffs, as the unions will often try to limit it to. They weren't able to this time. And although Jade has achieved something significant, and more importantly, can sleep easy at night knowing that she followed her conscience, this burden that's been thrust upon her has been a gigantic waste of her time and emotional energy 
at the end of the day, given her true mission in life. I want to teach. I don't want to get involved in this huge ordeal. I just want to teach. And I enjoy my job, and I'm very grateful for my job, and I don't want to make anybody mad. I want to be on a team. Is that too much to ask? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that piece, Alex. I just want to teach. And Jade also said, opting out of the union is a chore. I mean, heck, we have to opt in to email, for goodness sake. And last but not least, the bullying point. We hear about it at schools all the time, working on bullying, anti-bullying this, anti-bullying that. But this one teacher went up against her union, and they just bullied her and bullied her nonstop. God bless Jade Thompson. One mom versus the machine. Don't get in the way of these moms. And don't bully them, because they're coming right back at you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Jade Thompson's story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature. If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are you've heard Beyonce's get out of your seat and dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's single ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King. A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. Just got to heaven and I can't sit down. So you can watch the sunset. 
Gospel has that dun 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 right? It's influenced by Boogie Woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. It's, it's what caused people in churches to, to catch the spirit and to go wild. But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard. Oh, my soul! We're gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night, and I just got paid. Music historian Todd Boyd. A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint. Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor. Richard said, I want to bring you to this train station. I want you to hear something. So that listen to the train. The train's going off. He said, a wife when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I say, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer. A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good balanced sounding records, all American. Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats, as soon as you heard the very first notes, you knew exactly what this was. It came out sounding like God. Robinson. On the very first day of Motown, Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them. And he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not gonna only make black music. We're gonna make music for everybody. We're gonna make music for the world. We're gonna make music with some great beats and some great stories. And we're gonna always do quality music. We'll go places 
in the South taking our, our Motortown reviews down there, you know. There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking, intermingling, holding hands. His little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be. Here's producer Greg Fillingaines. The basic elements or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic. I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. James Brown and the JBs in the mid-60s changed the sound of, of what dance music is. If you listen to, to um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band, it's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is. Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing it was funkier than than motown motown wasn't really funk that to me is the hypnotic power of the james brown effect he influenced sly he influenced stevie he influenced prince he influenced dance music indeed he did now let's take this back to where we started Here's the hit-making songwriting production team for single ladies, Harrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City! Yeah, 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 Trick started this beat, just a drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard. And I just sat in the back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, I would say what. I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not I'm giving not me giving no, no love. He's, yeah. not, he's not, we're not in it nothing. together. He's just, I'm giving him nothing. I'm Jedi. Trick stopped the beat. And I look at him, I was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what, what do you mean? I was going to start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in there. He's, he's, like, he's, like, right? he's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. <laughs> The anatomy is there. The heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the, the, the I just have to put the legs on. Don't pay him any attention. Cause you had to turn turn. Now you gonna learn what it really feels like to miss me. She came by 
to just kind of poke her head in and kind mm-hmm. of hear what it was. And she was like, oh. And she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out. Like, there was no nothing. It was like, yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the yeah. next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth sing, singing. And we were like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is happening. He's thinking about how to connect the dots. Lyrically, I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about, like, to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with the. It's like, that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I could see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the, and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And there you have it, who would have thunk it? From the gospel pews of the American South, throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and, of course, the producers. And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. The story of a song, Single Ladies, Put a Ring on It, here on Our American Stories. 